Never do that it, accent again. It, <laughs> 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 That's but, a hate crime. Hello and welcome back to episode 20 of Double Reel. This is the second reel of our monthly magazine-style podcast for film nerds. Hopefully you've caught up with our first reel, had a brief intermission and refueled, ready to take on this mighty second instalment of Nerdy Film Chat. If you haven't caught the first reel yet, please do go back to your app and download and listen to it so you're up to date with all the features we've covered already. These include our roundup of news and spotlight on some of the films we watched this month, our classic and recommended feature on The Big Sleep, our hidden gem Small Soldiers, the one that got away about Oliver Stone's Martin Luther King project, and our remake Hate Watch of Get Carter. Now in Real 2, we bring you our big conversation, where we tackle a weighty topic and give it a fuller, i.e. longer, discussion. This month, our discussion poses the question, how true are films based on a true story? How much should we expect films to be an accurate portrayal of real-life people and events? And how much should we rely on such films if we want to learn about true-life events? So... I don't know about you, James. I think different people have different opinions about this sort of thing. We have had some views from, uh, uh, you know, listeners about this to say, you know, uh, you, you know, I don't expect it to be detailed, and it's only a documentary. That's been quite a common comment from people when I stuck this up on the socials. Um, for me, it does annoy me when when films are, you know, wildly inaccurate, but it, it can vary. And there's a good quote by Roger Ebert, which which I thought was an interesting. Uh, an interesting way to put it. Roger Ebert was always very good at, you know, you could agree or disagree with what he said, but he always put what he said beautifully. And he said, in films like this, I want moods, tones, fears, imaginings, whims, speculations, nightmares. As a general principle, I believe films are the wrong medium for fact. Uh, and I think what he meant by that was um, the, the film isn't going to be 100% accurate uh, because, you know, film has a, a two-hour format and life doesn't. But that what what you want to get across is is like a flavour, a feeling. Um, you know what what was it like? And I think sometimes the accuracy of what it was like and how people felt and and that sort of thing um, is is more important than every single you know scene and, and statement being exactly what happened at the time. But I think different people have different views on this, and um, I thought it was an interesting way to start into it, especially given one of the big new releases of the last month was House of Gucci, which is based on a true story. Uh, some of the Gucci family have disputed it and said it's a sensationalised version of events. Um, there's been a couple of things about you know the way certain characters looked and things like that. Um, but but other people have come back and said that actually a lot of it was quite accurate. So you know there are always true life films um, being made, and I think this this discussion comes up quite a lot. So I mean, what's what's your view on this uh, in terms of what what are you expecting from a film based on a true story? Okay, so there's a lot to dissect there. You <laughs> you've set me up beautifully. Um, so I have seen House of Gucci, so we'll get into that. But back to the the first point you made about Roger Ebert, I kind of wholeheartedly disagree with that. Now I don't know if that's just because I'm quite I'm quite pedantic with um, historical fact, um, because I've got quite I've got a keen interest in history. I've got a bit of an aptitude for history. It's the one subject I was pretty good at at school. I was pretty rubbish at everything else. Um, and I think the I think the one that we're probably going to talk about is the one that also has a close like I have a close connection to, which is Braveheart. So for me, I think historical fact is important because, you know, you, you, you need to tell the story accurately. You can't, you can't tell it inaccurately. It doesn't need to be sensationalised. Because um, that always seems to be the thing. You, the, the film will come out 
and then the family or the people associated with the the real life event will say, "Well, that's not true. That's all been sensationalized." And that's almost like a kind of, "Well, why why they sensationalized it? Then was the real story not interesting enough?" And I always feel like if the if the story wasn't interesting enough to be a biographic film, make a documentary about it. Make it an hour long. You mm-hmm. know. Um, do you want to talk about Braveheart? Should we just should we just start with that? Or so, yeah, I mean, Bra- Braveheart's an interesting example. I think. Um, well, there's there's a, there's a number of different like true life films, and I think we'll come to you know one of the things we'll talk about later are westerns, and I don't think westerns about real life characters need to be particularly accurate at all, and we can go into why. But I think certain historical events about you know the founding of countries and 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 that sort of thing, I, I do think you have a, a responsibility to the truth, and I think there's a there are, there are always things there are always things that are inaccurate in films uh, and and I think some of them are forgivable here's an example of a forgivable inaccuracy in house of gucci and we can we can get into how braveheart differs from that in house of gucci there's a scene where um adam driver's character escapes to switzerland on a motorbike um one step ahead of the the law is about to arrest him for stuff that's gone on in the film uh, and lady gaga's character and and their, and their kid uh join them uh, in in Switzerland shortly afterwards, and in the film, when they get to Switzerland, that's when Adam Driver tells Adam Driver tells Lady Gaga's character that that, that it that it's over and they're separating. I don't think we're giving up big spoilers here. There are a few events in the film that that uh, that are far bigger spoilers than that. Now, in real life, there are two things about that that are that are inaccurate. One, um, that that the Gucci couple played by Adam Driver and Lady Gaga, they had two kids, not one, and the director just said, "Look." I, I, you know, I think it will take up too much screen time for no further effect to to show them having two kids and everything going with two kids. I think one kid is, you know, is enough to kind of saves money as well to have, yeah, to not have another member yeah. of staff paid. It's, it's and, and, and and the and the other thing and the other thing that happened was that in real life they had their time in Switzerland, waited for things to die down, went back to Milan, and then um, Adam Driver announced that they were they were separating. But in terms of the flow of the film. They felt it made more sense to do it in Switzerland, and then for there to be a period when um, Adam Driver's character is in Switzerland and Lady Gaga's character is in Milan to emphasise the difference between them, sorry, the, the distance between them, having been together for you know and, and, and seeming like a quite a strong couple prior to that. And I look on those as, as quite forgivable changes to yeah. the, to the fact because I don't think they've changed anything substantial, right? And they've got you know, and if anyone says well. Yeah, that's broadly what happened. Do you know what I mean? They separated for some reasons, and they kind, you know, they did go to Switzerland, and that stuff did happen. He did go on a motorbike, and and it feels like streamlining the events to make it easier to to, to pack a, a story into the time, so long as you haven't misrepresented what happened, is okay. And then you come to Braveheart, which is a whole different kettle of fish. So we've said that there's like almost a needle. The needle can go from one to a hundred. On, on levels of inaccuracy, levels of like you know perfect um, adherence to fact, and Braveheart is is past the acceptable line. Le- you know the needle's in the red for Braveheart, and why don't I let you tell us why? So yeah, um, just to quickly kind of not you know echo what you said, but in House of Gucci it, it makes sense because they still got divorced. Okay, maybe maybe it happened in Milan, but it's just to emphasise the kind of distance between them. Totally agree with what you're saying. They've not told, they've not said that they didn't get divorced, mm-hmm. or that this happened. You know that, that that they've they've still told the story. You know, um, Maurizio and Patrizia Gucci got divorced. They separated. Um, 
whereas in Braveheart, there's it's they've completely sensationalized it when you didn't really need to sensationalize that story. That is a great story. And if you tell it from start to finish, from King Alexander the Third dying when he falls off his horse, to Robert the Bruce defeating um is it Edward the Second? Mm-hmm. Edward the Second at the Battle of Bannockburn. That's an incredible story. I, I, I'd encourage anyone to read it. It's not obviously not taught very widely. It's taught very, you know, it's taught very, you know, sorry, it's taught throughout Scotland and throughout Scottish schools very mm. um, deeply. It's a very, it's just, a, it's, you know, it's a very patriotic story and it's... Um, I think you can tell the story in a dramatic way while still respect broadly respecting the facts. Yes. Do you know what I mean? You know, like, sh- show the battles and, you know, show... Show the things that happen, but you have to you have to show them accurately. The whole point of the the story of Braveheart is that the English the English forces completely outnumbered the Scottish forces, um, in both in both manpower and in, in terms of cavalry, in terms of weaponry, um, and we still managed to you know drive England almost out of the country with our meagre forces, and that's the story. That's the story of Braveheart, and they decide to add in things. Like they, they they miss the point with the the Battle of Stirling Bridge is probably William Wallace's most famous victory, um, William Wallace and uh, I can never remember the guy's name. I think it's Andrew Murray. I think it was the other one. Okay. It was the other general because everyone talks about William Wallace, but they never talk yeah. about. I'll look this up now. They went to Stirling Bridge, and the whole point of it was to get the English forces to come across, come across the bridge, so you could only have a few hundred at a time. And when they got across, they would just get absolutely annihilated by the Scottish forces. Um, Andrew de Murray, yeah, that's his name. And um, that, that, they, they would not have won that battle without yeah, the British. Yeah, when you said Andrew Murray, I thought it was a really tough battle. Yeah, it was a really <laughs> tough match. <you> know. <laughs> Edward Djokovic put up a really good fight. Anyway, Andrew de Murray, he, him and uh, William Wallace, that was, the, that was the plan. That's why they won the battle, because they, they thinned out the forces by making them come across the bridge a few at a time and they were massacred, and that's how we won the battle. In the film, it just seems to think that we won the we won the... They won the battle on Buckfast and Deep Fried Mars. Is, is there even a bridge in that battle? No. There, you see the back of a Toyota Hilux in it, because that's not <laughs> been edited out. Um, but it just seems to think that you know putting on some blue paint and wearing a kilt gives you superhuman powers. Not quite, but close enough. But th- why Why could you have not told that? You could, that's, what, that's what's good about Outlaw King. Now, Outlaw King's got some really ropey accents. I don't know why they won't just cast someone Scottish to play, um, play William Wallace. But they they try and tell it accurately the Battle of Bannockburn again we were outnumbered but they 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 did little things like um I can't remember what they called them I think they they laid little like spiky traps they dug trenches and things like that to kind of slow the English down and they won the battle because of that and that's still interesting it's like the underdog the underdog story which mm-hmm. everyone loves everyone loves the underdog story but Braveheart decided to not do that it was oh let's have the Battle of Stirling Bridge and we're not gonna have a bridge okay uh, the Battle of Falkirk. They, they seem to suggest that Robert the Bruce, who is Scotland's greatest ever king, decided to betray William Wallace and um, hand him into the English forces in some sort of kind of weird plea deal. Yeah. Didn't happen. Ask anyone. Yeah, that's, Didn't happen. That, that's the thing. And, I mean, the other thing, that a couple of things annoyed me about that. William Wallace is portrayed as essentially the same character that Christopher Lambert plays in Highlander. Some kind of random bloke in a kilt. He lives in a village in a mud hut, right? When in fact he was a, a minor nobleman who probably had a little castle. And William Wallace is portrayed as as something he uh, clearly wasn't. 
And he also makes this speech just before one of the big battles going, for 700 years, they've held us down. They've treated like this. They've done this. They've done that. Going, That's Ireland, mate. That's <laughs> Ireland in 1800. Different story. And and it's just, it's just no, there's just no need for it. You don't need that speech. You can have a rousing speech about, we're not going to let this foreign country take us over. You don't need to make up, you know, that sort of nonsense. Uh, and the, and famously, the the bit where the character played by Sophie Marceau, she's the French princess who is um, engaged to the, to the English king and eventually marries her. And William Wallace uh, in in the film falls in love with her and sleeps with her, which um, it, for a love interest to kind of thumb their nose at the king and go, "No, no, we you know we you know we shagged your we shagged your wife," except of course in real life that character was eight years old when she married. Um, Edward II, as was often the case. You know, you made these marriages for alliances and then they lived in a little castle and when they came of age, they actually went and met their husband. So either it didn't happen or William Wallace was a paedophile. Um, yeah, William Wallace is, is alleged to have um, had sexual relations with this French princess when she was three years old. So, well, in real life, she was three years old. So there's that. They've also portrayed Edward II as this kind of camp arty farty kind of almost like a eunuch in like ancient greek or ancient roman times and in real life he was a bit of a mad bastard but i mean he, he was, was quite a vicious man but yeah he yeah. was but he wasn't uh he wasn't this kind of king his father was and there were rumors that he was gay um but not the fact that he was gay didn't have anything to do with the fact that he you know he, he lost you know the war his father started and it's just it's just gratuitously homophobic yeah um but and it's just it's it's it's, it's all it's a it's a once upon a time, that was acceptable football terrorist banter for Scottish people to say, oh, the English are all poofs. But, you know... Never do that it, accent again. It, <laughs> <laughs> That's but, a hate crime. But but it doesn't age well, do you know what I mean, as a as a portrayal of a, of a historical character. It's like, oh, you know, he's, uh, he's, you know, there's something about homosexuals that makes them, like, terrible in battle. You should, you know, you should tell, tell Alexander the Great that, do you know what I mean? And it's just I've, got another sto- I've got another story to add to that. Just um, my pal um, Rory works with a guy who is uh, who is gay, and his family have basically just shunned him um, because he's gay, and they they don't speak to him very often. They only meet when it's like a a family meeting, and they kind of have to be in each other's presence. And um, his his three brothers really rip into him for being gay, and one of his brothers was saying, um, "You know, you're a puff, you're a." You know, you X, Y, and Z, and X, Y, and Z, all the slurs and stuff like that. <laughs> the gay guy just turned around and kicked the fucking shit out of his brother and said, "No, you've just been battled by a perf. What are you gonna do about it?" <laughs> <laughs> so anyone who suggested that because you're camp, you can't fight has never has never met a gay man from Glasgow. Yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah, it's, it, it's just it. There's the thing is, there's a lot of stuff in there that was absolutely no need for. I mean, there's a. There's a series of novels about Robert the Bruce by a guy called Nigel Tranter, and 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 the, the 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 part one of the novel that covers the bit where Wallace is kind of leading the rebellion. Um, yes, at that time Robert the Bruce was um, needed to tread a very careful political line because he had property in France and property in England that could be forfeit if things went the wrong way, and he didn't go straight up to the front lines with with Wallace. Uh, you know, uh, you know, devil may care. He was an enigmatic figure at that time, but at the same time, the way it's portrayed in that is that when Wallace was on the run, he um, he was commissioned or he had his arm twisted by the King of England to go looking for Wallace, 
And what he did was he deliberately looked in all the wrong places so that he would never found, find him. But he took his forces, all rode all around Scotland to all the places he knew William Wallace wouldn't be um, to kind of lead the English a merry dance. Something you could put on, on screen that would be quite good to look at. Do you know what I mean? So like you say, there are good stories associated with Wallace and Robert the Bruce, which would have been entirely cinematic, mm. um, that, um, that you could have done instead of fabrications that are... That, the thing is, they're fabrications that portray things the complete opposite of how they were. And that's, that's, that's the thing. Robert the Bruce is, you know, Scotland's greatest ever king and did so much for Scotland that to kind of say he just kind of threw Rob, uh, Rob, uh, William Wallace over the bus like that when he was actually kind of thrown in by some serpent called John Dementieth who, was, who just turned him over um, like that. There was nothing... Um, there was nothing yeah, Robert, Robert, kind of Robert the Bruce had to live to fight another day so that he could win at the Battle of Bannockburn. Yeah. And he didn't throw William Wallace under the bus. But yeah, there was a, there was a lot of complex politics going on. You know what? People are watching shows on Netflix and, and fucking HBO with medieval settings where the politics are a bit complex and absolutely loving it. There's no need to, to resort to this kind of crude you know, nonsense to tell your story. And it's, it's interesting because here's a comparison for you because this is a film we both love, is Ridley Scott's Gladiator. Now, there are a couple of things in, in Gladiator which are historically wildly inaccurate. Um, there's there's no evidence that uh, Commodus uh, killed his father, Marcus Aurelius. Uh, and he wasn't killed in battle in the, um, in the arena. And... Uh, he ruled actually for a lot longer than is portrayed in the film. And some of the main historical events in in Gladiator aren't really how things went on. Now, notwithstanding, that's a story from almost 2,000 years ago where the historical record is very, very limited. It's perhaps got more room for, for, um, for invention. But I think the reason, the reason Gladiator gets away with it is that it brings to life um, uh, Colosseum, life in Rome, life in the Roman court, life in some of the colonies of Rome where the gladiators kind of build up uh, in Oliver Reed's company to uh, to being invited to Rome, all of which was meticulously researched and where Ridley Scott made a huge effort to say that's what the streets would look like, built whole streets and whole buildings so that it would look right, built a mock-up of like a third to a half of the Colosseum and did the rest with CGI so that you could saw stuff that you've never seen before. And it's almost as if to say... Depending on the context, you can forgive some wildly inaccurate stuff, yeah, in order to get the um, uh, to point across. A lot of Roman emperors were absolute sort of psychotic scumbags who stabbed each other in the back, left, right, and centre. Do you know what I mean? And the wars. But in order to portray what a Roman battle looked like and what a Roman gladiatorial contest looked like and portray all of this world, Ridley Scott took some liberties with the historical record that are quite. I mean, they depart quite heavily from what actually happened historically. Why do you think um, it, it's it's more forgivable in Gladiator than than in than in Braveheart? I mean, I made a couple of excuses there, but why, why do you think you know it's it's forgivable in that sense? Um, I don't know. Do you reckon? I reckon it's because it's not really about Commodus and Marcus Aurelius. It's about 
It's about Maximus Decimus Meridius, who never actually existed. Mm-hmm. They've kind of fictionalized the story and kind of woven in real characters, which they do with things all the time. Um, a very good example of that is Casino. Yeah, so if you like, a good example would actually be the, the Assassin's Creed games, mm-hmm. where they just go, this character is in Renaissance Italy, or is in England in 793, you know, that kind of thing, where they... Mm-hmm. And then they'll they'll meet Alfred the Great and they'll suggest it's kinda of like hinting at like things yeah. that they might have been or might have they were they part of the secret order. Yeah. Did Commodus kill Marcus? No, there's no evidence of that. I don't know whether it's just because I'm a lot more passionate about it because I do live in Scotland, but it's it's the fact that, you know Glad does Gladiator even have a thing at the start saying based on a true story? No, it just tells the story of Yeah. A gladiator was Braveheart's always trying to get on that like this is a true story. Yeah, but it was the screen. The screenplay was written by a guy called Randall Wallace, who claims to be a direct descendant of William Wallace. Uh, I'd love to see okay. his family tree to see how true any of that is. Um, and he claims, oh, this is all historically accurate, and it's just like, mate, it doesn't. You know, do you know what I mean? It, it, it it's making claims it doesn't need to make, and and it just. I mean, I think the reason I'm okay with Gladiator is you can watch Gladiator and it brings to life, as you say, a world that um, that's never been portrayed that vividly. And as you say, the main story is about a fictional character, which is why, which is why I went to Casino because the the the, the characters played by De Niro, Sharon Stone, Joe Pesci, and at least a couple of others in uh, uh, in Casino. Um, they're based very closely on real life characters, but they've changed the names so that they can actually do, you know, in Scorsese's running time, and Nicholas Pelleggi, the writer, the guy I did Goodfellas as well, can say, look, not all of this happened to this person at this time in this way, which is why we've changed the names, yeah? That that, that casino wasn't called that, you know, the, the real life character worked at this casino. We've invented a casino. And actually what we're doing is Across that, in that kind of drama documentary style that Scorsese's perfected, where you get a lot of voice serving, well, I did this and I did that, you can actually tell more of the story. Do you know what I mean? You can actually say, well, well, if you if you um, if you if you read up on it, there were three or four characters and the the combined events of their lives and their battles with each other and their double crosses and and their um their taking over of casinos by organized crime in Vegas you actually find out a lot more about what it was really like. So it doesn't try to say that that's what happened to that real person. And at the same time, gives you a more accurate account across the whole of, you know, 10 to 15 years of events than than if you just focus on one person's actual life. And it's almost like saying you get more of the real story across by not not tying yourself too closely to the facts, but not pretending either that you're, that you're telling a completely true story. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, I mean, there's a number of different ways that that that, that you can do it. Um, other other um, films that I think people have praised for their historical um, accuracy or for their the, the way they've portrayed true life events is a couple, The Big Short and I Tonya. So the reason people liked the way things were portrayed in The Big Short and I Tonya is that they had this very interesting fourth wall breaking, uh, and and on the one hand they actually said we're going to have a voiceover or narrator saying some stuff happened. They do similar stuff on like TV shows like Narcos as well. Uh, and, and you know, Scorsese's relied on voiceover a couple of times in his films, and it does work. And especially in The Big Short, there's this whole scene where a character is given a report by one of his co-workers, which reveals a number of the things that, um, uh, that happened to leading up to the big financial crash of 2008 and what the banks that were doing that were abusive. And they just pause and say, look, 
That's not exactly what happened. Someone else found the report, read the report, and then gave it to our character. But we thought it was a bit quicker to just kind of portray it like that. And it's an interesting right. thing what they did, because what, what they're saying was, is look, the things that we're telling you did happen. And in order to get this story across to you concisely, we've cut a few corners, but we're actually openly admitting to you that we've cut a couple of corners, but assuring you that the things we're saying happened actually happened. And I think you, you the, the film gains credibility because of that. And they do something slightly different in Itonia, but it's in a similar vein where a, a scene will be portrayed, and there's a lot of voiceover in that film. People say this happened, that happened. And after a particular scene where I think Itonia Harding hits someone with a baseball bat, there's a whole pause, and Margot Robbie Stern stops and turns to the camera and goes, right, this didn't happen like that, that's bullshit. I was accused of that, but it's not true. And what huh. that does that's quite clever is to say, actually, true life events can be disputed. There are three or four people involved, and each one of them might have a different version of what happened. And you might say it happened like this, and one of the people that you're portraying in that scene would turn around and go, no, that's not how it happened. And I thought it, a lot of people really like that because to say, actually, I feel more confident that what I'm being told is a true story because the filmmaker is admitting that everyone's got their own side of the story. And while you're doing that, you're, you're conscious that... And it plays into Tonya Harding's character in the film because she, you know, in the end, I think what people admit is that Tonya Harding was completely wrong to do what she did to Nancy Kerrigan, but can understand why she was such a rebellious figure. And to show both sides like that in a two-hour film, it was a very clever way to distill the fact that events are A, disputed, and B, hard to portray in exactitude, scene by scene, in a two-hour film. And So it just goes to show, in my humble opinion, that there are ways to portray events accurately in, in film and get across some of the challenges of a three-act movie structure. And that's why I think I don't forgive Braveheart, but I do forgive other films for where they've been a little bit kind of fast and loose with the facts, you know? Yeah, you know, there's always sides to stories, but you know, there's there's no side to the fact that William Wallace didn't shag a three year old French princess no. and didn't and, win and, a battle and, and, and because what, there wasn't a bridge. What does it prove there. anyway? What does it? What does it kind of? What does it give you anyway to include that scene as if like, oh yeah, he shagged he shagged the King of England's wife? Come on, mate. I mean, that's like a joke for the pub, not you know. These films yeah. are, you know, it's what Mel Gibson is actually a very talented film director. And there's a lot of stuff in Braveheart that is very rousing and stirring and, and, and exciting to watch. But it, it does kind of ruin the film that a lot of it is complete fucking bollocks. Because 25 years on, it looks worse and worse, you know? Yeah, it's just... With, with things like Braveheart, you know, it's not an actual true story. So they thought, oh, what if this gladiator's been stitched up by the Emperor? Oh, yeah, that sounds cool, because those Romans were a bad bunch. So, yeah, Gladiator is not a true story. Yeah, that that's the thing. I mean, Ridley Scott's only got two hours, and Roman history lasts four or five hundred years, and he wanted to find a way of telling the story about, you know, emperors stabbing each other in the back, sometimes literally, emperors being crazy, um, you know, the, the, the effects of politics on, you know, the status of, a, of, a, of an otherwise loyal and, and true military commander, the effects of of the Romans going out and conquering territory. And it's like, you know what? A, a, a history teacher could um, could show you Braveheart in, in a class and go, look, don't listen to any of this. It's a totally distorted version of what happened. But a, a, an ancient history teacher could show you Gladiator in class and go, look, in two minutes, here's the bits that are fictional. But other than that, that's what the Colosseum looked like. Do you know what I mean? That's what the Roman <laughs> campaign in Germany looked like, you know? And while those particular emperors weren't exactly like that, you know, let me tell you about Caligula and Nero. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, that, 
And I, I think, that, that, I think a that's bit, a good measure about whether a truth a truthful story is 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 you know is. I suppose it sounds a bit hypocritical though, because you know we're saying, well, why is Braveheart not done to the letter of the the letter of the law? Why is it not done properly when it's? Uh, I mean, the story itself was interesting enough, but I think what what I'm trying to say at least is is that it's a if you're if you're making a story from scratch, but it's set in like a real life period and it's going to have real life characters, I don't mind as much. Mm-hmm. But when you're doing a biopic or a story that's basically a biopic, you know, and it's interesting enough to be made into a biopic, don't embellish it, you know. Yeah, there's a, the there, there's a couple of other examples that I, that I'd like to kind of throw out there. Straight out of Compton, which on the whole is is a very good film. I'm I'm, I'm actually a big fan of it telling the story of uh, NWA and all of their various events. Um, but people have said, while they haven't actually fabricated anything, per se, they have left out a lot of things that happened or, or downplayed some of the things that happened that make might make you think that they were a bit less violent, a bit less misogynistic, and a bit less kind of crass than they actually were. Do you know what I mean? Right. And it's like, I can understand it, because at the same time, you know, it's almost like they don't trust the audience to kind of understand that they're human beings and they were young and they would... If you, you know, Ice Cube is 50-odd now. He's not far off being a granddad, depending on what O'Shea Jackson Jr. does with his time. And I'm sure he's older and wiser than some of the stuff he did when he was partying with NWA, right? And Dr. Dre similarly. But they did do some shit that was bang out of order. Dr. Dre beat a woman up and they, they conveniently left some stuff out that would have cast those characters in a in a less flattering light is that acceptable um if you're asking me i don't think that is acceptable i think it's not necessarily lying but it's failing to tell the truth and you know obviously dr dre is not going to be you know one of the producers for a film that's basically suggesting or is basically telling the story of him being a wife beater um but also if it's a story about someone's life you want to tell you want to tell the whole thing you know they weren't necessarily good people yeah, and if you were going to do the big short, you know, casino, Goodfellas type thing, or even The Dirt, which is a Netflix film about Motley Crue, you could have a bit of a voiceover where Dre and an Ice Cube say, yeah, that was out of order, wasn't it? We were ourselves then sometimes. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, whether they'd be could, up to doing that is another thing. <laughs> I don't know. It's, I mean, the thing is, you know, you compare that to Johnny Cash, who was, who was, you know, just not afraid. I mean, the things that downplayed what Johnny Cash's life was like in um, Walk the Line is that they were trying to get a PG-13 or 12 certificate, you know? Johnny Cash was completely open and said, look, all the shit I did, all the stuff I did wrong, all the things I smashed up, the arsehole that I was at times, I'm not afraid of, of telling. Do you know what I mean? Because he was very confessional. He thought it was better to just be open about everything in his life, good and bad. Um, right. But yeah, not everyone would be like that. I mean, similar stuff... Um, Serpico. Serpico in many ways is is quite accurate, but it doesn't it doesn't spend much time on other officers who are contemporaries of Serpico who were caught up in the you know the corruption the battle against corruption as well. Now is that fair? I mean uh, uh, all the president's men is similarly criticized. On the one hand, it's a pretty accurate depiction um, with some dramatizations here and there of what Wooden Bernstein did, but it kind of forgets that 40 plus percent of the articles being written about Watergate that put all the pressure on Nixon were from the New York Times, not the Washington Post. So obviously the Washington Post was leading, but there were other papers um, that were had an equally significant role. Is it inaccurate of those films to fail to mention the roles other people played in the story? Do you know what I mean? Yeah. No, I, I, I see what you're saying. I, I, I agree to some extent. Um, 
I mean, I'm, I'm personally, I'm okay with it because you know, it's it's a it's an it's an accurate portrayal of those you know those stories. Um, but I do under, I do understand the I do understand the criticism. Here's a couple of really um, you know really out of order examples in my humble opinion. And there's a couple of recent Clint Eastwood films where I feel like Clint Eastwood has kind of crossed the line between his filmmaking and his politics a little bit, which is a shame because he didn't he used to be better at managing this. Um, Richard Jewell and Sully. And in the film Richard Jewell, he Clint Eastwood portrayed the the journalist, the woman journalist, uh, played by Olivia Wilde, I think, as sleeping with FBI agents to get a story. Right. And never happened. You know I remember this being a thing. Yeah. And and it just it's all it felt to me like all part of this, let's just pile up the shit on top of, of all journalists to say all journalists are bad, they're all corrupt, they're all evil, fake news, fake news, and, and falling into like the trap of, of of the Trump narrative when the way in which the media went after Richard Jewell is already based the the facts on their own are already a good enough story. And there was no need to essentially slander someone who's dead and can no longer defend themselves. And I thought that was bang out of order. And the other one, I think the one that was really shit was Sully. Um, because, and I, th- I think, and, and I think this plays into your your argument or whether something should be a film or a documentary. In real life, right? Sully um, brought the, the the plane down with an incredible piece of flying, saved the lives of everyone on board was widely admired and as is completely normal there was an FAA civil aviation whatever it is um, inquiry into what happened uh, and and in and in real life all they did was interview everyone talk to Sully and say look what were your instruments saying do you know what I mean what you know what were your instruments saying before things went wrong and what happened when when they went when when they went afterwards look at the engines and go yeah it was a bunch of geese going through the 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 engine or something that's what caused the failure and they just did a careful methodical investigation into what happened for no other reason other than you know, this is what we do every time. And without any controversy, without accusing anyone of anything, at the end of that normal and thorough and careful investigation where everyone was treated fairly, they came to the conclusion that, yes, Sully did a bang-up job. Uh, but but as a result of this investigation, we've learned some stuff about why engines failed. Do you know what I mean? We, we studied all the instruments and we've worked out why Sully was able to land the plane. There's, there's something we can teach new pilots. And it was all just a normal, careful investigation. And in the film, it was like the people wanting to investigate are bastards who are trying to make Sully like out to be the villain and blame him for the whole thing and 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 they make this whole for the sake of drama they make this whole thing up that, that the investigation was actually a witch hunt to try and make Sully out to be the villain and kind of pin the crash on him and blame him for the crash um and not only is that bollocks right and uh you know and you know a, a terrible narrative shortcut in order to create some drama it also plays into this very right-wing narrative that anyone regulating things is just getting in the way, that regulators are arseholes stopping good people getting and doing what they're doing. And most people would sit back and say, no, I'm glad there's a regulator on fucking air, air travel. Do you know what I mean? I'm glad there's a regulator checking that everything works right because I wouldn't want to fucking crash from 40,000 feet. And again, there's no need for it um, because the story is quite dramatic, um, except that the actual dramatic events only lasted about five minutes and it probably should have been a documentary. And in and in and in dramatizing it and making up a whole load of shit, you you people come away thinking, "Oh, regulators are arseholes," and there's no need for that. And I th- and I I think that is from your argument. That's a film that should never have been made. 
should have been a documentary uh, and they should not have portrayed people who are actually diligent, decent people doing their job well and did nothing wrong in these circumstances as assholes, which is particularly hypocritical because they're accusing them of doing exactly that to, um, to Sullenberger in the film. Yeah, that's, that's an interesting point because do you know what's a good film... I suppose a similar genre of air crash disaster movies mm-hmm. um, is Flight with Denzel Washington. Have you seen it? Yeah. Now, that's not a true story. It's just the story of a troubled pilot who's an alcoholic mm-hmm. whose plane engine fails. He ends up doing this mental maneuver and saves the lives of about 250 people, but I think four or five people die. Mm-hmm. And he basically goes on trial for their deaths. And it turns out he was intoxicated and they have like toxicology reports and um, they kind of go after him and say, okay, yeah, he saved those lives, but he still killed these people. Um, or he still gets pinned for it. And why were you flying, um, you know, inebriated kind of thing? Yeah. And that's an interesting story and it's a good story. But the reason it's an interesting story is because it isn't true. It's fabricated and they've come up with a good story. And there are Whereas- millions of good fictional films where everything in, in there is not true. Uh, is 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 made up for the purposes of drama, but is probably based on some very detailed research yeah. into real events, and that's a really good example of if you if you're interested in this whole thing, come up with a fictional story. There's loads of fictional stories that are you know yes that didn't happen, but that's a very accurate depiction. You know no one's pretending this happened, but in watching this completely fictional story that doesn't pretend to be other than fiction, you actually get a really good portrayal of police procedure or CIA investigations or you know. Or whatever it is, you know. Yeah, no one. I don't think anyone would um, dispute the things that happened in flight being realistic. I'm sure pilots could concur or disprove whether the maneuver that's used in the in the film. Yeah, was I mean that, that's a whole, that's a whole other debate. But, you know, like all you know, the science fiction the films reason, where there's noise in space. You know, the reason it stands up as an hour as a two and a half hour long film is because they've made it interesting. Now, if you can't make but interesting, like if you can't make the Sully story interesting, then don't make it, you know. It's um, because yeah. what you're going to find is, is that you're going to have to pad out the plot and you're going to have to kind of speculate. And, um, you know, you might not actually find anything. You know, but you might not actually be able to create a, an accurate story. And then you're just, you, well, why have you made that stuff up then? Because you yeah. couldn't, you've basically been given the go ahead to make a film that isn't necessarily true, if you yeah. get what I'm saying. Yeah, like, I know exactly you, what you mean. Like, yeah, this thing you, you've you've got options, right? If the true story doesn't really stand up as a film, if you stick to the facts, make it a documentary, or make an exciting fictional drama based on research into real events. There's millions of those, and they're all really good. There's some great, you know. Funnily enough, we talked about um, uh, my cousin Vinny, which no one was pretending for a second is based on real life events, but lawyers point to it as a really good portrayal, a really accurate portrayal of legal procedure. You know. Yeah. There is no, there is no need, in my humble opinion, to make gratuitously made up bullshit that's masquerading as fact. Do you know what I mean? Because there's, there's, there's different ways to tell the film. Like, like with a couple of things like The Big Short and I Tonya, you can, you can be open about the fact that you've had to kind of um, uh, manipulate things to to get the story across. You can completely fictionalize characters and set it in real events, like with Gladiator, and people can accept that. So you know, I just I I think if if people are portraying things 
in a way that didn't actually happen. And actually you come away thinking that's, you know, that's not what really happened and you just slandered somebody. Then I think that's where you failed. I mean, for example, with Titanic, there's that whole bit where they portray a crew member as having done a lot of shit he didn't do. And he's got living relatives who are absolutely livid about that, you know? Yeah. Where, where the historical record proves they didn't do anything of the kind and there was no fucking need for it. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, like, just, if you're going to have to have something like that in the film, just make the character's name up. Yeah. <laughs> Don't actually use the actual, an actual real-life person's name. Um, and, and that's the thing. There's a couple of, there's a couple of examples, I think, of where people have, have, have messed around with them. The, f- the first one's Oliver Stone, who we, who we discuss in real one, um, for a, a biopic of Martin Luther King that didn't get made. And it's ironic that Oliver Stone's complaints in that were that he wasn't allowed to, to tell the whole truth because he's done quite a few films based on real life events. Now I'll preface this by saying, I think Oliver Stone's an amazing filmmaker, but when he wrote the script for midnight express, he wrote an absolute load of bollocks masquerading as fact. And it, his, his relationship with the truth is so weird because the real guy um, is still alive and can tell you all about what happened and doesn't understand why uh, Oliver Stone uh, downplayed the fact that he's bisexual, the, the main character is bisexual. Um, he invents a bit where the guy calls Turkey a nation of pigs and threatens to fuck all their daughters and sons when he's convicted, which didn't happen. Uh, and I- ironically, uh, there's a couple of things, the other things, Billy Hayes is um, portrayed as murdering a prison guard to get free. Yeah? And on the strength of what was portrayed in that film... Interpol issued a warrant for the real Billy Hayes arrest for fictional offences as a result of that. Because Turkey made a complaint and said, well, if you murdered a prison guard, I want him back here. And Oliver Stone actually portrayed things in a film that actually had a negative impact. You know, he, he made up shit in a film that had a negative impact on the person he's making a film about. So what we're saying is actually right, you know, make, make, make the film accurate so you don't get people thrown in fucking yeah. jail. And if, you know, and if you want to play around with the facts, make a fictional film that, that, that talks about being arrested for drug offences in a Turkish prison. Do you know what I mean? Um, and probably his biggest film of that is JFK, which which cinematically is an absolute masterpiece. But there's a lot of stuff in that that is just made up bollocks. On the one hand, I think there's a lot to the, the contention that Lee Harvey Oswald didn't act alone, that there's some other shit going on um, uh, to do with the Kennedy assassination. But Oliver Stone just plays into the, into the hands of your real fucking tinfoil hat-wearing conspiracy nut who sadly is having a very negative effect on public life these days by just making up some complete shit. Oliver Stone in that film has got people confessing to being involved in in the JFK assassination when in real life they always denied it. And surely (laughs) Oliver Stone's a skilled enough filmmaker to say, this guy never admitted it, but I'm sure that he did it. And here's some stuff I can dramatize to show why I think he did it. Do you know what I mean? But to invent a confession... It's just, it's lazy and it's a terrible, terrible attempt. And I think it probably weakens his point because it's so easy to point to huge inaccuracies in JFK that people who want to argue against there having been anything wrong with the official version of events, they can drive a bus through Oliver Stone's facts. And I think that's that's one of the reasons why, especially relatively recent history. I know JFK, you know, JFK's assassination is a long time ago now. It'd be 60, 60 years soon. Um, but it's still... It's still living memory, and to portray things so inaccurately is is a is a terrible um, event. But but here's, yeah, here's an interesting one though. I wanted to throw out to you to see what you think of this. Have you seen a film called Confessions of a Dangerous Mind? No. Well, here's the thing: 
It's based on the autobiography of a real person called Chuck Barris. He was a television producer and host. He invented something called The Gong Show, which I don't think we really have nowadays, although it was a talent show. So we have things like that now. And he invented the dating game and presented the dating game, which was called, which became Blind Date over here in the UK when they sold the format. Um, and the film of his life that George Clooney directed uh, with a screenplay by the great Charlie Kaufman, it's quite possible that literally everything in that film is a load of made-up bollocks. And yet, I'm happy with everything they did in that film. And the reason for that is that Chuck Barris claimed and swears blind and wrote in his autobiography that he was an operative for the CIA all the time that he was working in TV. Huh. And that under cover of, for example, chaperoning the winning couple on, on Blind Date or the American version of Blind Date on holidays, he would go with them, you know, ostensibly to show that everything was above board and there was no funny business, right? Right. Um, and when he was there, he would go off and carry out an assassination for the CIA. And he was adamant. He was adamant, swears blind. And he could be he could be crazy. He could have had a nervous breakdown and made all this shit up. Or maybe it's 100% true. And George Clooney and Charlie Kaufman made the inspired decision to simply write and make the film as Chuck Barris tells it. And it's an amazing film. It's one of my favorite films. We'll do it as a hidden gem one day because it's not very well known. But that is a film that's also, there's all sorts of inaccuracy. And people can, you know, the CIA has denied that, that any of it's true. People might come out and say all those dates are wrong. And all George Clooney and Charlie Kaufman have to say is, this is what Chuck Barris said happened. And the fact that he claims it happened is interesting enough to make a film about it. It, it doesn't really, it's not typical. I think all the other types of films we've talked about are examples. There are many films like that. Do you know what I mean? Of what we've talked about. But that's a really weird example of you can tell a story entirely from one person's point of view. And if you tell it right, it doesn't matter if any of it's true. Because all you're saying is that this is how they say it happened. Hmm. Yeah, that ties into your point, like, for my Tonya, where it's like, well, it's, they said that this happened, and yeah, then yeah. the other person said this happened, so, yeah. There's other things, I mean, there's a few things where, you know, U571 I completely condemn, because that entire mission was a load of made-up bollocks that makes it look like the Americans and not the British, you know, cracked the Enigma code. That's bullshit. Um, hmm. But there's other stuff where I think, you know, it'd be, it'd be interesting. I'm going to throw out a couple of things and tell me what you think. The, da the Damned United... Um, first of all, that book was, I mean, we talked about this on the podcast before, but that they had to tone down a lot of stuff in the book because the book um, was written by a Leeds United fan, funnily enough, who wrote it as if Brian Clough had already descended into alcoholism and was completely obsessed with Don Revy. And that's why everything went wrong for him in the 44 days he was the manager of Leeds United. And they had to tone a lot of that down because the family just objected to the whole story. In fact, they sued the author of that book, David Pace. But in, in the film itself, there are made-up scenes for example there's a bit where he stays in the dressing room because he can't he can't bear to watch what's going on and he watches the whole second half from the dressing room and and hears that they've won by all the cheering never happened he was in the dugout the whole time right and when he has his interview at the end with Don Revy he's not ambushed he didn't you know he didn't turn up at the studio only to find Don Revy was going to be there with him they actually you know agreed beforehand Revy and Clough you know, negotiated with um with um, the 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 interviewer that they were both going to be there in the format of the interview, but for the sake of the film, they've tried to make it look a little bit more dra dramatic. And you know, Peter Morgan has a habit of this, where on the one hand, 
He's probably right in a lot of things he says in that film about why Brian Clough failed. He tried a little bit too hard to, you know, move away from Don Revy's methods and the the, the, the squad didn't like him and he was probably never going to succeed. It was a bit mad for him to try and do it anyway. Do you know what I mean? And right. yet he, he fabricated some stuff that didn't happen in order to tell that story. How acceptable is that in your in your, in your view? No, it's not acceptable. Tell the story. Mm-hmm. Tell, tell the story. Don't try and conflate stuff that between tr- don't try and conflate stuff to try and explain as to why the conclusion of that story happened don't try and suggest that because he was an alcoholic or he, the reason he failed was because he descended into alcoholism don't do any of that stuff just tell the fucking story this, like I said like I've said if the story is interesting enough you can make a film out of it what about Eddie the Eagle where instead because he actually had a number of coaches over time and none of them stayed all that long um, there'd be one coach who was with him for a bit and another one was with him for a bit and so on and so on. They um, they essentially invented the character played by Hugh Jackman to be his, to, so that he had one coach the whole time. Right. Um, now, see for that, if I was the director making that creative choice, I think you could have had a funny little montage of all the different coaches he had and then the final one being Hugh Jackman kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Just to Because kind of, I think that's a comedic thing in the film. He's so useless that he's had about a dozen coaches. Yeah. So that's what, how I would have approached that. But I get what you're saying. It's the same with um, the Chernobyl TV series. Mm-hmm. Um, they had Valery Legasov and yep. then Boris, because I don't speak Russian, um, Stellan Skarsgård's character, and then Emily Watson, is that yep. her name? Her character was like I, I an amalgamation. I, I can never tell the Emily's apart. Let's say it's Emily Watson. There's Emily Watson. There's Emily Blunt. There's Emily there's Emma, Mortimer. There's Emma Watson. That. Did you know the one I mean? Oh, don't bring the Emmas into it as well. We'll yeah, get completely yeah, yeah, yeah. lost. So anyway, <laughs> I think it's Emily Watson. Anyway, her character's a scientist who works in Belarus and she specializes in nuclear physicist. Mm-hmm. Now, her character's like a like an amalgamation and like just a kind of big blend of about 600 scientists that were involved in Chernobyl. Mm-hmm. But HBO basically just kind of said, well, yeah, we can't employ 600 actors. We basically just got her to say everything that all these scientists were saying. Yeah. Because that makes sense to do it that way. Like, for there are some things that you need to kind of streamline, and that's one of them. But you don't need to just start fabricating stuff. Like, if you're, if you that makes sense, you know, you know, only having one coach in Eddie the Eagle yeah. because they, you, they don't have time to kind yeah, of explain it all. It makes um, sense dramatically. I mean, here's, here's a couple of examples. Um, see what you think about them. Cool Runnings. Right. Lovely film. Totally feel good um, in all of those things. However, the whole kind of uh, disgraced uh, Canadian coach um, helping them do it, I don't think that happened. The right. um, the sprinters coming up with the idea themselves didn't happen. It was a bunch of Jamaican businessmen who, who worked out that sprinters uh, could make great um, bobsleigh guys because they're so quick. Um the um, when they got to the the uh, the games, all the other competitors, especially the East Germans, were actually really welcoming them, really really welcoming. Um, you know, they looked at them and said, "God, if you're brave enough to go down that at sixty miles an hour, um, then you're all right by me." Here's some equipment. You know, they lent them equipment and they helped them out. Whereas in the film, they were like, "Oh, what are you doing here? You don't belong." So that they could give them the whole slow hand clap of approval at the end. You know that typical Hollywood trope where they're not accepted to begin with, but because they're so plucky, they're accepted at the end. Didn't happen. And when they crashed their um, uh, their bobsleigh at the end, despite actually looking pretty good prior to that, they didn't pick up the sleigh and carry it over the line. They walked beside it to the line, but it looked more dramatic for them to carry it over the line. Is that acceptable or unacceptable? 
Um, that's and, we're, gonna... and we're talking about a film I dearly love. A film that makes... I, I love it. I love all the characters. I love um, the quotes. But at the same time, is it is it is it right for them to be that made up? For that, I don't think that's acceptable. Here's, um, another, here's another one. And, and, it, and it's... And it's this is done, I think, with a more um, with a more reasonable intention. We've had a proper go at Clint Eastwood for a couple of recent films where he's, you know, screwed with the facts to make his point. In Invictus that we went to see together back in the day, um, they have a whole bit where um, the South African team, which is mostly white apart from one black player, Chester Williams, um, they're initially like unhappy about the whole. Uh, role they've got to play in the you know the townships and stuff and there's a particularly kind of strong scene where Matt Damon turns up and says here's the new national anthem this is it in a you know in 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 a proper native african language yeah uh and um and they're all saying this is a terrorist song you know you used to get put in prison for this i'm not singing this and Matt Damon says well you're bloody singing it the song means god so you know you know god bless africa i think we need god's help right now don't you think and it's all very dramatic um, in the film, it's you know designed to portray you know initial resistance to what Mandela was doing. The reality is that those guys were singing that song in the shower for months before the World Cup. As soon as they were asked to sing it, they were like, "Yeah, fine, this is great." And all of these you know Afrikaners with Dutch names were happily singing Kosa or Zulu words to to the you know Nelson Mandela's Af- African anthem without any any um, objection. They they were loving it, um, and. Why I think this is slightly different to the Cool Runnings one is while that's not really what happened, how much time has Clint Eastwood got to portray how the whole of South Africa felt um, and the different um, the different arguments and the different feelings about adopting a more kind of inclusive anthem and an inclusive culture in Africa when he's got to tell the story of Matt Damon and the Rugby World Cup? And is it actually okay to say that the while it didn't exactly happen like that, the white South African rugby players are standing in for all of white South Africa to show how Mandela won everybody over. Do you know what I mean? It's a narrative device that shows how Mandela won everybody over and brought everybody together that is still made up. Um, Again, that's kind of 50-50 for me. I understand why they've done it. Um, But again, the story of Mandela is so interesting. And the story of the 1995 World Cup is so interesting that I don't think you need to kind of use devices to tell that story, if you get what I'm saying. Yeah. Um, I understand why they do it for cinematic effect, but I don't think that film is immune to criticism mm-hmm. based on its accuracy. Like, I hate that if you say a film's, you know, inaccurate. It's like, oh, but they were just doing it as a device to tell an entertaining story. It's like, the story that's entertaining in itself, you don't, you know, don't, it doesn't mean it cannot be criticised for being inaccurate. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I'm not, I'm kind of 50-50 on that one. And the thing is, we've talked about things that are a bit kind of borderline or, um, you know, what's right and what's wrong. There are also some films that are are praised for their accuracy, which I think work dramatically as films, which for me, I think I think where I am on this is that I, I can tolerate a certain amount of dramatic license if, if the film is broadly accurate. Do you know what I mean? Um, but yeah. I think I draw the line at saying, you know, this person was an arsehole when they weren't. This person did something bad that in real life they didn't do. Do you know what I mean? 
Um, but there are films like, you know, Zodiac, you know, we talked about The Big Short, Spotlight, um, Apollo 13, um, 12 Years a Slave, which, are, you know, even Catch Me With You Can, um, that they've been praised for being a very accurate portrayal of the events that they that they depict. So it's possible to make a good film and, and stick to the facts. But in those films, there's still one or two kind of little shortcuts. But on the whole, it's like, no, that's, you know, that's pretty good. Um and, and and I think maybe what we're saying is you can make a good film out of real events. And if you can't make a good film out of real events, make a documentary or make up, you know, make a completely fictional film. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Mm. But but here's one that, that's interesting, um, I think. The, um, the social network. Right. Because on the one hand... That film portrays a whole lot of stuff that didn't happen. All the stuff about um, Mark Zuckerberg coming up with Facebook as a way of getting back at a girlfriend who, who dumped him. There's a series of conversations about, you know, where Mark Zuckerberg, you know, says some things or does some things he didn't actually do in a way that portrays him as a as a pretty cold and and an unforgiving and unpleasant figure, right? Um, and on the one hand, here's, here's my argument. You can tell me what you think. On the one hand, a lot of that is fucking made up. On the other hand, in 2010, no one actually could see, or no one, a lot of people didn't, couldn't see how things would go with Facebook and how they would become the kind of entity that could, you know, undermine all of news, all of journalism, and actually a lot of, you know, democratic elections across the, the free world. And the way in which Facebook has, has you know, been been pilloried for some for some real abuses. And yet, there's something about that film that really rings true about what Mark Zuckerberg's really like. And as with eight, with each passing year, that film seems more and more relevant as to um, as to what Mark Zuckerberg is like and how um, uh, and how potentially toxic um, the, the the modern social media world can be. It's just that he didn't do it to get back at anyone. He did it because he's one of these tech guys who who does things and loves money. And the real reason isn't as dramatic, but actually, you can you can go back and watch the Social Network now and go, yeah, fucking hell, Facebook, you know, Mark Zuckerberg. Do, do, am I am I am I letting it, am I letting that film off too lightly? Um, is that is that not genuinely how it happened though? Did it not happen because he he was fucking annoyed at his ex, so he decided to make that kind of rate your your dorm to the best of, to the best of everyone's knowledge? No, he just he just had an idea. Uh, and and didn't think about didn't think too much about the repercussions and yeah uh, he fell out with a lot of people he probably didn't nick the idea from the um the 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 Vinklevoss twins they probably just had competing ideas at the same time um he um but at the same time there's something about that film that feels really true and feels truer and truer nowadays when you see what happened in the 2016 US election and all of that stuff but a lot of, it, it didn't happen the way that film says it happened. But it see it underlying it, it seems to portray a deeper truth about Zuckerberg and Facebook. Hmm. Yeah, not too sure about that one because that's that film in itself is really fucking boring, and that's the only kind of interesting and like high act, like the kind of kind of hijinks bit of the film. You know, that's the kind of exciting bit. Where he's he's made that thing and all the girls are kind of getting outraged that his kind of like misogyny yeah. and sexism. But if that didn't even happen, then 
So why have you done that then? Maybe for us it falls into the category of a film that would have been, you know, if you're talking about accuracy, it would have been better to do as a documentary. Because mm. you could you could probably do a, a continuing series of about four seasons on Facebook since 2006, I suppose. Yeah, I'm not too sure about that one. That one seems a bit offside. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a bit of a head-scratcher. I mean, it's funnily enough, I mean, you know, Social Network uh, is some people's pick for one of the best films um, of the past 10 to 15 years. Um, no, it's fucking boring. But, you know, it's not everyone's cup of tea, um, you know, because it, there's a lot of boardroom meetings and stuff like that and legal discussions, which, you know, um, David Fincher does a... It's an, it's an example for me of David Fincher doing an amazing job of a story I'm not all that interested in. Um, but I'm I'm, I'm going to gonna take it off in a, in a different direction now, and you, you, you can tell me what you think of this. There are certain periods of history where accuracy absolutely doesn't matter at all. And and, and hear me out because, like you, I mean, I, I you know I, I studied history. I'm, I love history, and on the whole, I completely agree with your argument that if you if you if you if you can't tell your dramatic story without hugely distorting the facts go a different way but there is an exception and for me that's westerns right and and the reason for that is that for especially for americans gunfighters of the wild west are there they're they're they're, they're like the knights of the round table to, to the british to the english i know it might have only happened 150 years ago but there's such there's such mythical characters and frankly they've been mythical characters even at the time, that it actually doesn't matter how, how true event, that these events are. There's a really interesting um, scene in a film called Young Guns, which is about Billy the Kid. And one of Billy the Kid's uh, uh, gang is reading the newspaper accounts of some of their exploits and listening to the, um, the journalists making up these florid bullshit accounts of one of their gunfights and one of their bank robberies. And making it sound like that Billy the Kid is some kind of Robin Hood figure, and he stops and goes, "Jesus Christ, this country needs a hero." And it's a lot of that film. It's almost like a it's almost like an eighties Brat Pack film that happens to be set in the Wild West. But it's it's a, it's it, what it tells you about westerns is that even when these people were still alive, people were myth making about them, and and that the truth has never mattered about Billy the Kid, about Wild Bill Hickok, about Wyatt Earp, about any of them. It's never mattered. It's more important to actually tell great legendary stories based in the Wild West. And, you know, the way the Billy the Kid story has been told in Pat Garrett and the Billy the Kid, The Left-Handed Gun, uh, Young Guns, various other films, you name it. You know, the Tombstone and, and Kevin Costner's White Earp film. It, the truth doesn't matter because we'll probably never get the truth because these people weren't well documented. Um, and even now when they're making new Western films, it's... These legendary characters, it's like it's that they are they are like King Arthur legends. It's more important to just tell fun, interesting stories, and it's almost like we've given them a big pass that says the truth doesn't matter. Don't believe anything in this film, by the way, but the truth doesn't matter. The thing with westerns is that they're kind of mythological in their own right. It's almost like American mm. mythology. Yeah, you know these westerns are kind of they're kind of they're like similar to kind of like Norse gods and Roman gods that you know mm. that they or did it happen you know um the, you know the the guy walked into town with a six-shooter and killed everyone in town kind of thing so i suppose it's a little bit different with that and i don't think they claim to be true stories anyway no no um 
But you know, the thing is, the, the the whole the whole western is you know, there's so many different ways to tell those stories. Whether you want to do something, you know, epic and revisionist like Sergio Leone or or uh, or Sam Peckinpah, whether you want to do you know something like the assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford, which every single character in there is a real historical character, but who knows how true anything in that film is, you know. I mean, I, I, I honestly, I think it is, and I'm not sure how many other historical eras there are that are like this. Um, you know, no one knows. King Arthur probably didn't even really exist. You know what I mean? It, it's, it's a strange, it's strange because there are photographs of some of these people. There are photographs of Wyatt Earp. There is a historical record of some of what Wyatt Earp did, right? But there's just something about it. There's just something about it that, that there's, it's, the truth is, is irrelevant. And I honestly, I don't think you know. Any, I think you can't do that. You can't do that with World War Two films, unless you do what Tarantino does and and, and posit from the beginning that you're tell, you're tell, almost telling stories from an alternate universe. Do you know what I mean? From you know Tarantino, yeah. Tarantino's alternative history that works really well. Um, like a what if Hitler died here well, or a exactly yeah what, what if, what if Sharon yeah. Tate lived kind of thing yeah yeah and I think other than that. Um, And there's there's one that caught my eye that was really interesting. It's it's not a particularly famous film, but I don't know if you've seen it. It's called Just Mer- Just Mercy, starring Michael B. Jordan. No, I haven't heard. I haven't heard or seen it. Obviously. It's 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 a good story, um, and it's and it's again it, it tells true events um, about a lawyer who got a, a guy off from a murder charge uh, in one of these states in the deep south where there were so many flagrant abuses of due process. Um, yeah. And he should never have even been arrested, and somehow he ended up convicted. And this guy needed to do an appeal. He spent years in prison, and um, you know, apart from the fact that he's being played by Michael B. Jordan, and he should be so lucky that he looks as good as Michael B. Jordan, the film is yeah. praised on the whole for being quite accurate. But one thing people commented on is they did actually tone down the true story quite a bit, because the the uh, the, the prosecutor who has to be convinced to drop the charges in real life. Was a bit of a cunt, if I'm honest, and he was a, an almost an asshole to the end. And in the film, they kind of portray him as as going, "All right, you know, do you know, do you know what I mean?" It, it kind of it kind of soft soaps quite how bad some of it was, and it's almost as if to say, you know, you, you, it, it, even even though the people who are watching the film are all on the side of the black people not being convicted of crimes they didn't commit and are against racism and are aware of how horrible racism is, it's almost as if the movies just have to tone it down a little bit, otherwise you wouldn't be able to watch it. Is that okay? Is is, is toning down quite how horrible something is so that you can at least watch it? Um, is that is that an inaccuracy? Do you know what I mean? Um, yeah. You've got to tell the whole story and you've got to tell it accurately. Yeah, I respect that. I see what you mean. Um, yeah, I mean, on the whole, I'm with you. I, 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 I think there are things that you know that it's okay to fictionalise. Um, if you take Schindler's List, um, there were several lists of people that he was trying to keep out of the concentration camps, and they just had one. Have you know? Is that is that an inaccuracy? Um, no. I don't think that's necessarily actually because obviously we won't have all that time to tell the full story. Yeah, and because there were different, you know, the lists were managed by more than one person, but it, it was, it was yeah. better to, you know, Ben Ben Kingsley's character and 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 Liam Neeson's character were still instrumental in everything, but it was better to have those two great actors together showing how things happened than no. to kind of dilute the story. 
I think like the Michael G. Michael G. Borden, Michael B. Jordan point is that you need to tell the story and it's all its horror. And I think mm-hmm. people are like film companies are too obsessed with making it a certain rating, mm-hmm. so more people see it, so more people pay to see it, and mm-hmm. they make more money. But yeah, no, you got to tell the full story. You got you can't just you know tell the story and not show it. Like you can infer to it. So if you don't want to show the full, like the full extent of it, then yeah, infer to it. You know what I mean? Like. If like if you if you feel like it's too uncomfortable, but um, could you imagine the last duel if it inferred to what happened as opposed to showing what actually happened? You know what I mean? Well, that was a whole debate, wasn't it? Some people found it a bit much to actually go back to the event three times and portray it. Well, you know, at the same time, I think people should be left in no doubt how horrible that that rape was and what that man did was and how she was treated was. Yeah. It's a similar thing to The Accused, which isn't a true-life drama. I mean, that's that's a perfect example of someone making a film where they've in- invented and fictionalised all of the characters, but it was a very, very accurate depiction of the problems faced in, in rape trials and the way, you know, attitudes to women and all of that stuff. Um, but, you know, uh, they, they showed you parts of Jodie Foster being raped and parts of her being attacked throughout the film, and then at the end... They just unflinchingly showed you exactly how she was, you know, gang raped by pretty much everyone in the bar at the end. And I think they needed to show that. They needed to show how horrible it was. They needed to kind of say, let's start taking this shit more seriously, you know? Yeah. I'm not I'm not too sure about toning down either. Maybe that's just because I'm yeah. I'm not as sensitive to other as other people are to violence and gore and atrocities. But maybe that's just me. Yeah, I mean that's a debate. I mean, personally, I mean from the films that we've discussed I'm pretty okay with, look, I mean, here's another example on the show's listening. He was he was in jail on a, on another issue because it was easy to get arrested for all sorts of shit back then um, when the initial list was drawn up. And it's like, well, it's, it makes more sense for, Schindler, for to see Schindler being directly involved. And when some women got lost in the system, he didn't personally go and pick everyone up himself. Like there were members of his team went and picked them up. Do you know what I mean? And I personally am okay with things that, you know, accurately portray the story, but they've they've combined a couple of things or cut a few corners narratively so that you, you know, the film doesn't become, you know, bloated and kind of lose its way. I'm okay with that. I'm okay with, um, I'm okay with only telling, um, you know, Woodward and Bernstein's uh, account of how they were involved in Watergate. I don't think it's that much of a jump. I've heard people really slag off and say, oh, but what about the New York Times? They wrote loads of articles as well. And it's like, um, what, I, I'm, I'm more than happy to believe that other newspapers were, were, were covering this as well. It was a big story. Do you know what I mean? I don't have a problem with that. Same with Serpico. You know, you're telling, you know, you're, you're not, um, the whole point of Serpico was that this corruption was really widespread and finding out that this shit happened to a lot of people. Yeah, I'm more than happy to believe that. But I think the film works better by focusing on one person's story. So focusing on part of the story, if it's still an accurate depiction, cutting a few corners, I'm okay with. But I think you know, I think we, we both agreed that you know, grotesquely distorting what happened and making out people did shit they didn't do, I think is is out of order, isn't it? Yeah, that's not right. That's incorrect. There's a, there's a good quote I found regarding um, you know historical dramas. And it's about Lincoln, which I think Lincoln suffered um, uh, from being, you know, not inaccurate, but but, but being dull. Um, uh, and it, 
but there was a quote when someone was there are quite a few articles if you read it if you go googling for like historians will look at films and tell you how accurate they are and i thought this quote put it quite well it says it is not a documentary but a work of dramatic fiction rooted firmly in historical fact his portrayals of the people and events might not be accurate in every minute detail but they are truthful and that might be more important um and and i and i think that's and i think that's fair i think if you come away from a film with a broadly correct view of how things happened you can always go and have a good read up yourself do you know what i mean A lot, a lot of listeners on the on the messages you know, on the socials have been a lot more relaxed than this. They've actually said, I mean, someone said, um, when I watch a film that's based on true events, I tend not to believe anything in the film. And if I find it interesting, I'll go read up on it and watch some documentaries about it. I don't really need those films to be to be accurate. And I understand that argument. I think my problem is that a lot of people won't do that second bit. They'll watch the film and believe that that's how it happened. And that and that does that does concern me. Maybe it's less of a concern now because films aren't as widely watched. But there are, you know, there was a time when films were, you know, maybe you know the more films being watched than than Netflix documentaries being watched, and the wrong side of the story can get told. You know. Yeah. It's, I don't know. It's 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 not a very hard thing to do, but they managed to find it hard to tell a well balanced, rounded story that just tells the truth you know i see i think the game changers are the guys who did the big short and the people yeah. who did itonia and and the way score and the way scorsese did casino and a couple of other things like that that says you can meld and, and mix and match all of these things you can stop and almost treat it like a documentary and if you watch narcos on netflix they do exactly this where they will actually stop and say well you know at this time 20 percent of you know, Mexican GDP was was cocaine trafficking. It's like okay, you don't need to you don't need to you know you don't need to dramatize it. You can actually have someone saying this this stuff happened and that stuff happened, and things like the Big Short. You know, clever stylistic touches can can get across the point. It's like watching a play. We all know that's not really Verona. You know, when you're watching Romeo and Juliet, it's the fucking local <laughs> theatre. You know, that bush is a piece of cardboard. You know, and it's almost like allowing people to accept that some of what they're watching is artificial provided that the overall story is truthful and i think mm. we've there is a debate about the line but i think you can use dramatic devices to show people you know if you can't dramatize it have a little voiceover because you that, that that's been done in very entertaining interesting ways tweak the story or failing that do a documentary or, or make up a fictional with, story based on those events the problem i have with you talking about scorsese though is that he did the wolf of wall street which is mostly accurate but it almost glorifies what he did see kinda... yeah that's a very interesting point because you know it's not yeah. about him portraying events inaccurately it's about coming away thinking god are you and i've spoken to a lot of people who watched that film and says oh you know it sounds like that jordan guy had a lot of fun as if as if there was no harm in it do you know what i mean and i think the the missing scenes from the wolf of wall street are, are where people have been left fucking destitute by his actions you know and where I, t- I tell you, if Spike Lee had done The Wolf of Wall Street, his his final 10 minutes would have been about the 2008 crash. And there'd have been documentary footage of kind of, you know, 
banks, you know, uh, closing and people losing their houses to actually just bring it home that says, you know what, that might have looked like fun, but people lost their livelihoods and in some cases their lives because of this. Do you know what I mean? And that's that was missing. It was almost too a moral a portrayal. Yeah, it didn't show any of them. Like it showed the the bad stuff that he did, mm-hmm. but it didn't it didn't really kind of discredit it. If you know what I mean, it, it almost it almost made it look like it was a victimless crime in some ways. And it's funny because when Scorsese did Goodfellas, a lot of people accused him of glamorizing those gangsters. And film film glamorizes anything it portrays anyway, because you know, the, you know Robert De Niro and Leonardo DiCaprio are considerably better looking than whoever they're playing on screen. Do you know what I mean? And all of that stuff. The thing that Scorsese said was, you know, uh, to, to Goodfellas was, did you mi- did you miss the bit where Joe Pesci fucking stabbed someone? Did you miss the bit where they bullied a kid and then fucking killed him? Do you know what I mean? Why do I need to spoon feed you the morality of this story? And on Goodfellas, he was right. But on, in, in my humble opinion, The Wolf of Wall Street, he was wrong. Because it looked like he, you know, um, Jordan Belfort was just manipulating fucking Wall Street spreadsheets when actually he was taking people's life savings. He was ruining the financial system. He was ruining trust in the financial system. And there were people yeah. like really harmed by that that you didn't get to see. So, I mean, I, I agree with you. It's it's interesting. It's almost a case of it's um, it's what, what you leave out is almost as important as what you put in. Yeah. Um, it's not just telling lies. It's not telling the truth or... Mm-hmm embellishing the truth without yeah it's 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 not that hard to do but they managed to find it really difficult especially if you're making a particularly kind of strong point if you want people to come away thinking yeah i agree with the director that's how things are or that's how this person was do you know what i mean if you want people to actually agree with an argument that you're making to then find out that they've made up the things that prove that argument it really does feel like cheating you know yeah you know the 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 unreliable narrator is a completely different thing. I mean, have you have you heard of Papillon? No. So again, this is completely before your time. There was a book written in the nineteen sixties, and it was made into a film with uh, Steve McQueen and Dustin Hoffman back in nineteen seventy seventy one. It was remade really badly with uh, Charlie Hunnam. Someone thought Charlie Hunnam could fill Steve McQueen's shoes. Imagine that. Um, hmm. But um, it tells this amazing story. The book is incredible, um, and it's a great film as well. And it tells the story of uh, in the 1920s and 30s kind of French criminals who might have even only committed quite you know petty crimes. They would end up being transported to these horrific island prisons in the Caribbean. Um, you know something like being transported to Australia, which the you know the the Brits were doing in the 18th and 19th centuries. And conditions were horrific. People were dying of heat stroke. It was absolutely awful. And this guy escaped loads and loads of times. His name was Henri Charrier. And he wrote an autobiography about all of his escapes. He was called Papillon because he had this big butterfly tattoo on his chest. And he eventually escaped for good and like went to live in Venezuela and ran a bar there until he died. And the story is an absolutely amazing account of all of these escapes. Uh, the only problem is is that uh, a lot of it isn't true. Oh, dear. A lot of it... To the, be- the best of anyone's knowledge, what he's done is that he's told a bunch of stories about his escapes, Yeah but he's also told a bunch of stories that happened to other people as if they were his own. And the only way to go in now is to say, look, this is an unreliable narrator. Imagine this is Henri Charrier sitting at the end of his own bar telling you his story. Take it with a pinch of salt. However, watch the film and read the book and you will see what those prisons were like 
and what the justice system was like there and what um, the conditions they were like and the incredibly daring escapes. But just kind of, you have to close your eyes and imagine a lot of different prisoners carrying out a lot of escapes rather than one person. But to be honest, by the time they were making the film, everyone was like going, yeah, look, this is bollocks. We don't believe any of this is true. But it's just a great story. And it's like it's like a... It's like one of those stories where you say, oh, this might not be true, but it's kind of you know, it's an exciting story. And it's almost as if to say, well, we don't believe everything you're telling us, Henri, but it's a great story, so we'll come along for the ride. Uh, yeah, I don't know if it's just because I'm quite OCD. I'm quite, a, I'm quite a pedant where I'm just, you know, I need, it, I need it to be on the nose. Like, obviously, if it's... If it's like claiming to be a true story, if it's like a story that involves real life characters, but it is fiction, that doesn't bother me as much. But I think it's when when you hit me with that, and most of it's bollocks. I'm like, oh. just, that, yeah, that, that's it's like the all thing. the air just leaves your body. You're like, oh, for fuck's sake. Yeah, and I think I think you almost have to kind of. Uh, it's like you have to treat Papio as almost like the unknown soldier. Do you know what I mean? It's like this is uh, this is a collection of escape stories. And the fact that he, the fact that he's made, the fact that he's claiming a lot of stuff other people did as his own is almost part of the story. You know, if you were gonna, if you were gonna make the story Papillon now, you would probably need to redramatize it with a, a journalist going to get his story. Do you know what I mean? And it'd be, yeah. some, it'd be something like the Usual Suspects, where at the end you kind of unpick how much of what they've told you is true and how much of it is an obfuscation or, a, a, you know, invention by someone who's just trying to spin you a line. Yeah, like, no, um, sw- like, like Life of Pi, where at the end they say, look, there's two different versions of this story, believe the one you want, you know? Yeah, or the end of The Dark Knight Rises, where is Batman dead or is Batman alive? Mm-hmm. That's that's totally different, though, because they're not biopics, but yeah. yeah. I get what you're saying. I get what you're saying. I think it's just I'm, I'm fully against anything that claims to be a true story, even yeah. if it's inspired by true events. Like, I, I went to see House of Gucci this, uh, mm-hmm. this month, and it was... Uh, it was... I... I quite enjoyed it, but there's some real. I suppose we can, um, we can dissect it maybe in its own kind of special. But it, it's mostly it's mostly true, like we've kind of discussed. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's, no, I can't, I can't be done with it. You know, it was the Spencer that I saw the month before, and it was like a fable based on a true tragedy. It's like fuck off. Like these are real. These are real people, <laughs> with like, you know, with the families. Like every, and every every story we've told today about a film that's. Mm-hmm inspired by true events it's almost like oh well the the relatives of this person have said this or the relatives of this person have said this and you know this person got sued for suggesting that brian clough was an alcoholic it's like just tell the fucking truth then like mm-hmm. yeah and and, that, and that's the thing there is um i'll tell you one of my favorite devices to tell a fictionalized account or, you know or to to use real events for your story but not have to stick to the record is there's some books by James Elroy, some of which have been turned into films. Um, there's a guy called Neil Stevenson who writes. He started out writing sci-fi, but then he started writing historical fiction. And he basically wrote historical fiction as if there was sci-fi. Just imagining that the arrival of Isaac Newton and all of these people and their new inventions would be a technological change akin to you know, what happens in science fiction when someone discovers space travel. And what they do is, is that they they mostly tell you the story of fictional characters who meet and talk to the um the real historical characters and and those those his, those historical events and those historical characters are a backdrop for a fictional story i'm totally here for that 
because you know it's fictional because you go oh well you know you know when you go on the wikipedia entry and like there's a cast list of 10 people and only three of them have got a link because they're real characters and the rest of the characters have been invented do you know what i mean I'm totally here for that because they're not trying to make out that this is what really happened. This is not the life of Isaac Newton. This is trying to bring uh, an era to life with a bunch of fictional characters. And you'll learn a lot about what really happened there because there'll be a lot of great period detail. Um, and you'll see some stuff that happened. You know, that's the Battle of Pearl Harbor or that's, you know, the English Civil War or whatever it is. But it's a fictional character. And I'm cool with that. I think that's a much better way of doing it. You know what I mean? Because there are great historical novels, historical fiction, where they say, well, you know, we're going to make some stuff up. So to do that, we'll make up some characters. And I think I think that's a better way of doing it if you want to use dramatic license. But when I, like you, when I hear that someone has used a dramatic license, it's like, well, how can I rely on anything you've said in the film? Do you know what I mean? Yeah, no, it's... Maybe it's just us. Maybe it's just maybe we are the problem. <laughs> like I say, a lot of the a lot of the people um, responding to this message on this in the socials were much more relaxed about it because I don't expect films to be true. You and I, I think mm. we're we're a bit more hardline about this. Not even true. I don't want to go into the Avengers and expecting it to be a true story, but yeah, I think I just it just does more damage than it does good, in my opinion. Yeah. It's just real life events are so are so seductive, you know. So, you know, Wesley Sullenberger is that his name? Sully, anyway. It's not James Sullenberger. I can't remember now, but he um he lands a plane on the Hudson, you know, and saves everybody's life, and it's a, it's the media story of the age. Of course, someone's going to want to make a movie out of it, and then someone's going to work out that the interesting bit of that story only takes five fucking minutes, you know. Chesley Sullenberger. Chesley Sullenberger, not Wesley. Chesley yeah. Sullenberger. So, no. and I think. I think people just need to uh, take a step back. Um, and like I say, there are people doing a great job of true life stories. And it's, it's not like we're saying, it's not like we're asking for something that's impossible. Because when David Fincher did Zodiac, or when those guys, you know, Adam McKay did The Big Short, they did really well with a true life story. So if they can do it and make an entertaining film out of it, then, you know, I, th I think that's, when we're not setting an impossible standard. I think filmmakers who do the job right are the ones setting that standard, you know? Yeah, no, I agree. That's all for this month's episode of Double Reel. Thanks for listening and for making it all the way to the end. Thanks also to my co-host, James Adamson. The podcast was edited in Audacity and hosted on Anchor FM. We are grateful for their continued support. The music was Mistake the Getaway by Kevin MacLeod. Small Soldiers is available on disc and to buy or rent on most digital platforms. Oliver Stone's Martin Luther King film is covered in many online articles. You can also read his memoir, Chasing the Light, but take it with a pinch of salt. Outside of Double Reel, you can find us both hosting a non-film-related podcast, The Adamson's Verses. Our most recent regular episode was the Adamsons vs. Nick Cage's Leopard Pajamas, and we just released our special seasonal episode, the Adamsons vs. the John Lewis Christmas advert. So this is me, James Adamson, signing off, and this is me, James Adamson, signing off. We will shortly be releasing a bonus episode of the Year of the Carpenter films we discussed over the past 12 months. After that, our next episode will be our regular episode 21 in the new year. If you enjoyed this podcast, please like and subscribe and tell your friends. Until next time, stay safe, watch lots of films, and may your life be as awesome as you pretend it is on social media. And enjoy your your socially distanced Christmas parties, everyone.
but I fucked it because I'm just thinking I might run Burgundy and I will just read whatever's put in front of me. <laughs> I'm Ron Burgundy? <laughs> Outside of WO, you can find us both hosting a non-film related po- <laughs> I can't even do it! This is the absolute worst we've ever done with this. Oh, <laughs> fucking small soldiers. Oh, no. <laughs> right, dead puppies and shit. Right. 